morning. Welcome to Blessed Hope Chapel, Treasure Valley. Glad you're here with us today. Blessed to have you and glad to be back. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray and then uh, jump right into the word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that we can get together, that we can break bread, Lord, that we can focus on you and what you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us all in so many ways for providing us with jobs, Lord, and food and clothing, and we can go on and on, Lord. Ultimately, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the future that we have in you, Lord, the hope that we have in Christ. May we cling to that, Lord, every day in the midst of troubles and persecutions and tribulations and difficulties that come our way in life. Lord, may we fix our eyes on you. We pray this morning, Lord, you would remove any hindrances, any distractions, anything that would get in the way from us growing in our love for you, our love for one another, our love for your word. So speak to our hearts right now, Lord. Encourage us, build us up, strengthen our faith, help us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to say thanks to all of you who are praying uh, for us. Uh, Last weekend, we went back to Simi Valley, and I shared at the memorial service for Nick, and I asked that you guys pray for us and that you know, that we would speak forth the truth and honor what Nick did for the Lord and his life and ultimately magnify Christ. And I believe that we did that at the memorial. I believe the gospel went forth. Hopefully people were changed. Non-believers hopefully came to the Lord and time will tell. That's in the Lord's hands now. But overall, the service went well and it was at Grace Church in Simi Valley and they held up to their name. They were very gracious. From the moment I walked in those doors, they were escorting me around, and they had the itinerary ready for me. A secretary came up to me. She goes, here's your cold water. Let us show you around the church. We're going to get you mic'd up upstairs. The pastor of the church, Pastor Jordan, takes me into his office, this massive office. There's a fireplace in there. He goes, you just relax. I'll turn the fireplace on for you if you'd like. You just get settled in here. And so I was like, I could get used to this. And so we were thankful for how the church treated us there, uh, the pastor, the staff. And then it was good to see our brothers and sisters back home. Blessed Hope Chapel see me. It was a quick trip. Flew down Friday, Memorial Saturday. Flew back here Sunday afternoon watched the Super Bowl and the weird halftime show, and then I was right back to work on Monday for a busy week, and then here we are again getting back together as a church, getting into the Word today, which we're excited to do. So today the teaching is bearing the fruit of faithfulness. We're making our way through all the fruits of the Holy Spirit. We've gone through, what, five of them now? We're on faithfulness, the last three, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're going to walk through faithfulness today and what it means to be faithful to God, what it means to be a faithful man and woman of God. And so that Greek word there in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness. The Greek word is pistis for faithfulness. And it actually, if you have a King James Version in front of you or you have a Holman Christian Standard Bible or a literal standard version and several others, it actually just translates it faith. Goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. And that Greek word used throughout the New Testament, pistis, it means belief, trust, confidence, fidelity. It's from patho, meaning to persuade or be persuaded. It's to come 
to trust. And it's translated 238 times in the New Testament as faith. It's translated 243 times altogether, but 238 of those times it's translated as faith. Three times faithfulness, one time it's translated as pledge, and one time as proof in the NASB. Verses that use this Greek word, one that you're familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It was one of those Awana verses that they gave us like a Kit Kat bar or whatever when we were kids. Learn this verse, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's at the heart of the gospel. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith. 1 John 5, 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's where our victory lies in our faith. 1 Peter 1.5 says, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, most commentators believe here in Galatians 5.22 that when Paul speaks of faithfulness, he's not primarily speaking of faith in God, the faith that brings salvation. They believe he's talking more about being a faithful person, especially how you deal with others, faithful in carrying out the Lord's work. That's what many commentators believe. This is what McLaren's exposition argues for. He says, quote, for it is not faith, speaking of the word there in Galatians 5.22, it is not faith in its theological sense to which the apostle here is referring, Possibly, however, the meaning may be trustfulness, just as in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, it is given as a characteristic of love that believes all things. More probably, however, the meaning is faithfulness, and Paul's thought is that the Christian life is to manifest itself in the faithful discharge of all the duties and the honest handling of all things committed to it. So being a faithful person, a trustworthy person. So he's arguing this should be translated faithfulness. The versions that translated faithfulness, they did a good job according to McLaren. But others would say, no, it's actually talking about faith in Christ. Another commentator states, this, his name is Gil, yet faith in Christ is not to be excluded as it generally is by interpreters. For this is not a man's self, nor have all men it. It is a gift of God, the operation of his power, and the work of his spirit. So I believe it's both. It's talking about faith in Jesus Christ and being a faithful servant of Christ, being faithful to those around us, being trustworthy. So it's dealing with both our vertical relationship with God, having faithfulness to him, being faithful to him, and faithfulness with one another, being a faithful steward of what God's gifted us with in this life to serve one another and be trustworthy. So, Paul is talking about both, and today I'm going to primarily, though, talk about the first one, our faithfulness in the Lord. And I'm going to ask a couple questions today, and the main one is, what is your faith in the Lord like? Is it a weak faith? Is it a growing faith? Is it a strong faith? Is it a great faith? And so that is the question that I want to focus on today. With that, are we faithful in carrying out God's work in our lives and being honest, trustworthy individuals? Of course, that's important. But I think if we get the first part right, the second one will follow. If we're faithful to the Lord, if we're growing in our trust in him and who he is, then what will follow is we'll be faithful stewards. We'll be faithful 
to one another. So, Galatians 5.22, I counted how many times Paul used that Greek word, pistis, in the book of Galatians, and it's 22 times, ironically. Throughout that book, Paul uses this word, faith, over and over and over again. He also uses the word law, namos or nomos in the Greek, 32 times in the book of Galatians. He also uses the word for spirit 18 times. Three major themes throughout the book of Galatians. Faith, law, and the spirit. Questions like what is faith? What is saving faith? Does the law save? What is the purpose of the law? Who receives the spirit? What does the spirit do? To answer these questions, if you'll turn with me to Galatians 3, Paul sums up and answers these questions for us pretty well. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, 1 through 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? As I was reading that verse this morning, I'll just stop right there and then hopefully speed through the rest of it. Who has bewitched you, right? Who has cast a spell on you? Jesus was publicly portrayed to you as crucified. Paul presented the gospel so clearly that he's saying you understood it. It's as if you were standing at the cross, right? It's as if you were there seeing Jesus crucified in the flesh right in front of you. You believed in his death, burial, and resurrection. You were trusting in him, and now you're trusting in a different gospel, a false gospel, a distorted gospel, Paul says in Galatians 1. When I think of this verse, I think of a person by the name of Joshua Harris. He he wrote several books. He was a pastor for 15 to 20 years in a church, And then he fell away from the faith. If you go on his Instagram page, which I used to check out from time to time just to, because I've been praying for him. I was praying for him this morning. I read some of his books growing up, and though I don't agree with a lot of it, there were certain things in his books that really helped me in my walk with the Lord, helped me to grow in purity and love for God and neighbor. And so to see someone like that that fall away, you go, who has bewitched you? It's as if a spell was cast on this person. How could you love God that much, do so much for him, be a pastor, lead people to Christ, and then now no, now not follow him anymore? Post things on your Instagram supporting LGBTQ and all this weird stuff. It's as if a spell was cast on him. That's at least my understanding. Because how could you turn your back on Jesus Christ, the God that you've served all these years? And that's the bewilderment that Paul's having with this Galatian church. He's confused. He's bewildered and he says, who has bewitched you? Verse two, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit, and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. 
For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So you see these three themes that I just mentioned, the law, the Spirit, and faith, all mentioned over and over again in these 14 verses and throughout the entire book of Galatians, but primarily here in these 14 verses, you probably picked up how he's contrasting the law and faith the law and faith. In verse 2, he says, those who have faith receive the Spirit. Verse verse 5, he says, God does miracles through the Spirit you received by faith. Verse 6, Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness. Verse 7, those of faith are sons of Abraham. Verse 8, those of faith are justified. Verse 9, those of faith are blessed. Verse 11, the the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12, the law is not of faith. And then verse 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so we might receive blessing and the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's showing them it's all through faith. And we've talked about that in the weeks past, but just wanted to bring a little reminder in how serious it is that we don't deviate from the faith, that we don't add anything to the faith. No works, no justification from the law, Nothing else can save us but faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And that's why Paul is so bewildered. It's just by faith. It's believing in Jesus. But you do have James chapter 2 to those people that are saying, oh, it's just by faith. See what Paul said? Oh, it's just by faith. So now I can live however I want. Poor person comes into church, I'll just sit him in the far back. I'll treat him like dirt. Rich person comes in, I'll flatter him, I'll appease him, I'll bring him to the front. I'll neglect the widow and the orphan. I'll, ne- I'll neglect people, but I have faith. James says, can that faith save anyone? No. But here Paul's dealing with the pendulum swinging the other way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work for my salvation. I'm going to go back to the law. I'm going to be circumcised. I'm going to keep this, that, and the other. And then I'm going to be puffed up r- with pride and be in the flesh, and I'm going to earn my salvation. And Paul says, no. It's all through faith. So, the Galatian church's saving faith was under attack. The true faith that they once held so dear when Paul first came proclaiming the gospel was in jeopardy of being overthrown by false teaching. And as I mentioned, Paul calls it in chapter 1, verse 6, a different gospel. Chapter 1, verse 7, a distorted gospel. He calls it a gospel that brings a curse. He calls it an anathema to be separated from Christ if you continue down this path that you're on Galatians. Galatians 5.4, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. To be severed from Christ, the Greek word means to be abolished, to nullify, to be done away with. Christ has no value anymore if you want to go back to the law if you want to try to save yourself. And I think Paul speaks so adamantly about this because that's the life he used to live. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. 
He was all about the law. He probably had the Old Testament, much of it, memorized. And he's saying, I'm done with that. Philippians chapter 3, forgetting those things that lie behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, that's rubbish. That can't save. That's a curse. I tried the righteousness of the law. And I was blameless in men's eyes. I looked really good in their eyes. Man, I was puffed up. I was in the flesh. He says, I was far better. They were doing this and that. I was persecuting the church. I was hunting Christians down. I was doing all that I could to show that it was all about the law. And then one, once he came to know Jesus Christ, he said, man, I'm, I'm leaving that behind. Sure, the law is good. He goes on to talk about that in Galatians and other books. Yeah, it's a tutor. It shows us our sin. He even says that in Romans. I wouldn't know what coveting was. I wouldn't know what this sin and that sin were unless I knew the law. The law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. And once we have Jesus, there's no need to go back to the law. And so he's pleading with the Galatian church. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. Then he says it again, Galatians 6, 15, Neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. So the question is, do you have faith in Christ? Are you a new creation? Is the Holy Spirit in you? And the Galatian church at first would have said yes to all three of those questions. Paul says in Galatians 5, 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were on the right path. You were on the path of salvation. You were doing well. Now you're being hindered. You're wandering from the path. You are in danger. Now, I don't think anyone here is running out to get circumcised going, I don't know if I'm saved. I must do this. I must keep the law. That's the problems that they were facing aren't necessarily the problems today. For many people that are hearing my voice, that's most likely not the issue you're going through as I'm preaching right now. Going, man, I need to go keep the law. I need to go do these works. But there are other temptations. There are other things that can creep into our life that want to attack and destroy our faith living in the 21st century today. And that's what I want to talk about in a couple minutes here. Listen to what Jesus said, Luke 18, 8, second half of the verse. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Scripture testifies that we can fall away from the faith. 1 Timothy 4, 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. It's interesting if people say you can't fall away from the faith. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Seems like you're contradicting 1 Timothy 4.1 when you say that, but nevertheless, Paul goes on to say, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some who have longed for it have pierced themselves with many griefs and have wandered from the faith. Some translations say have been seduced to wander from the faith. They've been seduced or they've, they've departed from the faith because of the love of money. So our charge in 1 Corinthians 6, 13 and 14 is to be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. 
Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul's going around preaching the gospel to all these churches, to the Galatian church, the church in Thessalonica and Philippi and Colossae and all these churches, and he's preaching the gospel. They're getting saved, and then he's writing letters to them saying, stand firm in the faith, stay strong in the faith, act like men, don't depart from the faith. Some will fall away, don't fall away. Keeping the faith is what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.19. Hold the faith as it's translated, holding faith, keeping faith, and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. We're called to grow in the faith, 2 Corinthians 10, 15. But with the hope that as your faith grows, we shall be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. That's Paul's prayer. That's God's prayer for us, that we would grow in the faith, that our faith wouldn't stay stagnant. Ephesians 6.16, in addition, taking up the shield of faith. How do you conquer Satan and his missiles flying your way every day? Taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. So we have all these exhortations, all these warnings, all these encouragements to stay strong in the faith, to grow in the faith, to hold up the shield of faith because some will depart and suffer shipwreck. Perhaps you've known a person or two or many people in your life that once went to church, once professed Christ, and no longer do. What's the reason for that? They're not heeding the warnings of Scripture. They don't have a firm foundation in the faith, and perhaps they've given into the flesh in the two things that I'm going to mention in just a minute. Twice in the Gospels, we see Jesus marvel. The Greek word is through madzo. It says he's astonished. He's awestruck. He's amazed. Jesus sees this man in Matthew chapter 8, and the scripture says that Jesus marveled and was amazed. It was a Roman centurion. He runs up to Jesus. He comes up to him, and he says, I am not worthy. He says, but would you heal my servant? He's paralyzed, and he's tormented. And Jesus says, okay, I'll come heal him. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come underneath my roof. He said, just say the word. Just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. Matthew 8.10, now when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. It was a Roman centurion. He wasn't a Jewish man. Yet he had great faith, humility, trusting in Jesus so much so that his faith allowed him to say to Jesus, just say the word. Don't even come to my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Wow, amazing. Jesus, and the second time that he was amazed was in Mark 6, 6. He's in his hometown. He goes back to, Be- he goes back to Galilee and he's preaching the gospel. He's teaching And the people there in his hometown say, wow, what amazing teaching. With what wisdom is he preaching? And it says that he's healing people. But Mark 6, 6 says, and he was amazed through Mazo. He was amazed at their unbelief. 
apistuo, faithlessness, no faith. They were saying, we know his mother, we know his father, we know his brothers and sisters, we know that he's a carpenter. We don't trust him. We're not going to put our faith in him. And the Bible says they took offense at Jesus. They stumbled over him. What category are we in? Hopefully, you want to grow strong in the faith. You want to have great faith to where you could just say like the centurion, just say the word, Jesus. I trust you at your word. I believe you. I'm going through troubles. I'm going through trials. His servant was dying. He was hurting. What are we going through to where we can say with great faith, I trust you, Jesus, that you are going to come through. So if we want to grow in faith, according to Galatians 5, we need to walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, submit to the Spirit. But there's also something else mentioned in Galatians 5.24, all those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's two things that go along with living the spirit-led life, bearing much fruit for the kingdom, and in today's text, growing in faithfulness. We must walk in the spirit and we must crucify the flesh. Both and, both sides of the coin. Just like when we come to Jesus, we must repent and have faith. It's both. If we want to live a holy life, if we want to grow in our faith, we must crucify the flesh. This is mentioned in Colossians 3, 5. It's mentioned in Romans 8, 13, and 14. It's mentioned in Galatians 5, 24. Death to the flesh. The number one attribute I want to talk about, two things I want to mention today for us to put to death in our lives. First one, which I believe wants to destroy our faith and has been successful in many Christians' lives, is worry. Worry. The Greek word is merimnao means to be anxious, to figuratively go to pieces, to be divided, to be distracted, to be pulled apart, sinful worry. Jesus addresses this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. He mentions this Greek word about five times in that short chapter. In Matthew 6, verses 25, 31, and 34, he three times tells his disciples and he tells us, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious or do not worry about your life. Do not worry about food and clothing. And then in verses 33 and 34, verses that I've probably quoted a thousand times, at home in bed, laying at night, or in the morning, or in the middle of the night, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has its own trouble. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Trust in Jesus. Today has enough trials. I can't think about Monday. I'm thinking about Sunday. I'm thinking about preaching right now. By God's grace, I'll get to tomorrow. His grace is sufficient for today, for the moment. I need to trust in his grace right now that he's going to come through. So when I'm laying in my bed at 3 a.m. and worrying about my work week and how I'm going to pay for the bills and how I'm going to raise my children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and love my wife the way I'm supposed to and lead the church the way I'm supposed to and 10 million other things, God's saying right in that moment, I'm taking care of you. You're laying on a bed in a house with food in the fridge, with money in the bank, with cars in the driveway, with brothers and sisters in the church that love you. And that's 
where God wants to keep us in the moment. I think there's a Jeremy Camp song, Keep Me in the Moment, which I've played also probably a thousand times because it speaks right into my life. Keep me in the moment, Lord. Help me to trust you right now. Help me to trust you with my tomorrow. Worry will destroy our faith. Worry robs us of our joy and peace in the Lord. Worry causes us to take our eyes off of his promises and off of his word, Matthew 13, 22. Worry causes us to lose the big picture and focus on the here and now. Worry causes us to forget God's faithfulness in the past and therefore doubt his faithfulness in the future. Worry causes us Worry causes us to be self-reliant instead of being God-reliant. Worry causes us to seek the gifts rather than the giver, Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Worry causes us to be timid instead of bold, Matthew 8, 26. Worry causes us to be afraid instead of courageous, Matthew 14, 30 and 31. Jesus uses a Greek word, I believe it's oligopistos in Matthew chapter 6 when he says in verse 31, O you men of little faith. And he goes on to use that word four or five more times in the Gospels, speaking directly to his disciples, and he says, O you of little faith. When he's in the boat and the storm's crashing and the waves are crashing against the boat and the storm's raging, Jesus is asleep on the pillow and those disciples are freaking out. They're worried Jesus, we're perishing. We're going to die. He's calm. He wakes up, calms the storm. Oh, you of little faith. Oligopistus, you of little faith. I'm with you. I uphold all things by the power of my word. I'm God in the flesh. Don't you trust me that I'm going to care for you? Worry causes us to be afraid instead of courageous. It causes us to be distracted and busy rather than sitting at the feet of Jesus. Luke 10, 40, verses 42. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. Really only one, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. That's what worry does to us. It makes us like Martha. To we're, doing a, we're doing a million and one things when Jesus just wants us to sit at his feet to gaze upon his beauty, to learn from him, to love him, to grow in him to where we're at peace and our faith is strong. So if we're going to bear the fruit of faithfulness and grow in a, and have a strong faith, worry must be crucified, must be put to death. It must be conquered by the power of the Holy Spirit with petitions and prayers and thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, do not be anxious about anything or do not worry, as some translations say, about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We know what prayers are, but he also says supplications. With prayers and supplications, with thanksgiving. What is a supplication? It's an entreaty. It's a seeking and asking. It's an imploring of God's aid in a particular matter. It's a specific need. You're praying specific needs. 
at least you should be and I should be, when we're anxious, when we're worried. Whatever we're worried about, with many worries should be many prayers. And they should be specific prayers. Lord, this is what is causing me to worry. And I trust you, Lord. I trust you that you're a good father. I trust you that you will help me. I trust you that you will come to my aid. It's a continuous prayer and petition to the Lord until he meets your request. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking until the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, guards your heart and mind in Christ. When I'm going through things in life that cause me to worry, I can choose two directions. I can choose to get on my knees and cry out to the Lord and give him that specific worry or I can choose, as I mentioned, to be self-reliant because that's what worry does. I can be God-reliant or self-reliant. I'm going to take this upon myself. I don't know if I'm going to pay the bills. I don't know how I'm going to do this. So I'm going to just work harder. I'm going to make it happen. Or I can go, God, you could drop, you could drop a million-dollar bill out of the sky if you wanted to. You could give me a mansion if you wanted to. You could pay off all my bills and give me the best retirement in the world if you wanted to. I mean, God can do anything, can't he? And if I'm his child and you're his child and he loves you and I more than we can even imagine, he's going to take care of us. So whatever circumstance we're in that might be causing us to worry, he's trying to do something in the midst of it. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He wants us to grow closer to him. He wants us to cast our cares and our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He's doing a million and one things in our situations. And we don't know all of those reasons right now on this side of eternity, but we need to give them to him. The number two attribute to crucify if we want to grow in faithfulness is greed. This one can come up subtly in our lives. In First and Second Timothy, Paul writes these books towards the end of his life. He's passing the baton off to young Timothy, his protege. Paul says in Second Timothy, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. And so, Timothy, it's on you now. Everything I've taught you, Timothy, apply in your life. And in these letters, Paul stresses many things. He stresses to Timothy to appoint elders, to preach the word, pray for all men. He warns him that apostasy is coming. He wants him to take care of widows. He tells him to embrace suffering and many, many other things. And then he also mentions to endure and to keep the faith. But Paul devotes first Timothy chapter 6, much of this chapter he devotes to the theme of greed. And you can imagine Timothy, who traveled for years, if not decades, with the Apostle Paul, knew Paul's stance on this issue. If anyone was not greedy, it was the Apostle Paul. He didn't take money from the churches when he could have. He built tents on the side when he didn't have to. He did everything in his power to show the churches, show other believers, show non-believers that he was above reproach, that he was doing it all for Jesus, and that he was willing to give everything up for him. And so he says in Philippians 4, I know how to be content in all circumstances. I've had little and I've had a lot. I've lived with little and I've lived in abundance. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It wasn't about the money. It was about getting the gospel out. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 33 and 34, I have, co- I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. He goes, I can prove to you I didn't covet. Look at my life. Look at how I worked hard. Look at how I provided for myself when I could have taken money for the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2.5, he says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Many of these churches were in affluent areas. They were rich and wealthy. And they were thinking that apostles and teachers were coming in for the money. And Paul goes, nope, not me. Just for the gospel's sake. Just to see you saved and built up in the faith. See, all false teachers, all false apostles have one thing in common. They're greedy. Second Peter 2.3 says of the false teachers, quote, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment is from long ago and their destruction is not asleep. Just turn on TBN for a couple minutes and you'll see some of these people still today, I believe. I mean, I haven't watched it in a while, but that's what many of these teachers are in it for the money. They're staying at $40,000 a night hotel rooms. Benny Hinn, his nephew, Costi Hinn, by God's grace, came to faith in Jesus, the true gospel, and preaches the true gospel, loves the Lord, and used to work with Benny Hinn, and has written books against him and spoken out against him and said, yeah, he gave me a Hummer just for me doing this for him. He'd give me this if I did that, staying in $30,000 a night hotel rooms, going to Africa and doing these big revivals with poor people that had no money, basically begging them for money so that he could live this extravagant lifestyle. That's what these people do. And that's what Paul was warning Timothy of. So even though Timothy could say, I know, Paul, I know where you stand on this issue, he needed to hear it again. And we need to hear it again as well. Because many people have been led astray. Their faith has been destroyed because of greed. And now when we say greed, we're not only talking about money. It could be possessions, it could be people, it could be food, it could be, you can be greedy for just about anything. And Colossians 3, 5 says greed is idolatry. It's just propping up idols in your life and in my life. That's what greediness is. Greediness is saying, I am not content in Jesus. I'm not satisfied in him. I need more. If you want to see greediness, just slip through those doors back there and go into the nursery and the children's church. They will show you an illustration, a picture of what it means to be greedy. This toy is not enough. These toys are not enough. I want your toy too. I'm going to take your toy. Or you can just come to my house this afternoon and you'll see my kids. That's greedy. And it doesn't stop there. It just continues into adulthood. We just do it on a different level with different things. I'm not content with what I have. I want that too. When God says, no, be content. So, 1 Timothy 6.10, or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. Verses that I memorized as my bank account, as I mentioned, was dwindling some years ago. $800 a month, my bank account was dropping. Talk about having to have your faith tested as I'm seeing my bank account drop and going, Lord, 
I'm at my job, I feel content here, but I need another job, I need more money because eventually this is gonna reach zero. I got a wife, I think I had Leland at the time, but God put these verses on my heart at the time to memorize. First Timothy 6, 6 and following. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it either. But with food and covering, with these we shall be content. Those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some who have longed for it have pierced themselves with many griefs and have wandered from the faith. But flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness and godliness and faith, love, perseverance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life by which you were called and made the good confession in front of many witnesses. See, you can be losing $800 a month from your account and still be greedy. You can be poor and still be greedy. Greedy's not only wanting more, greedy's also saying, I'm not willing to give up things for the gospel, for the Lord. Greediness ultimately comes from the heart, as I'll share in just a moment. But if you look at verses 10 through 12, 1 Timothy 6, 10 through 12, Paul mentions faith three times in these three verses. If you love money, if that's your main ambition in life, Paul says in verse 10, you will wander away from the faith. You will pierce yourselves with many a pang. Do you know any more? Do you know anyone that used to profess faith but now has been led astray from the faith and it's because they loved money? Perhaps you know a person or two like that. So what's Paul's exhortation in verse 11? Flee from these things. Flee from greed. Flee from selfish ambition, from living for yourself. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Pursue faith. Timothy already is of the faith. Timothy already is a Christian, yet he needs to continue to pursue a stronger faith. And these things are going to hinder his faith. Greediness will devour his faith, and it will devour ours. So Paul is pleading with him, pursue righteousness, godliness, pursue a sound faith. And then once again, on top of that, a further Exhortation in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Agonizomai, the Greek word, a contest, a struggle, the Grecian games that, they, that Paul and Timothy and others could look at in that part of the country. They could go and watch the boxing matches and the wrestling matches and people basically killing one another, fighting to the death. Paul's saying do that for the faith. Fight the good fight of faith, Timothy. Realize that there's temptations and things out there that want to destroy your faith. So hold fast to eternal life. And so these are things that we need to take seriously as well. So the question is, are we content? Are we content in the Lord? And that's a good way to see if we're being greedy or not. If our contentment in the Lord is dropping, most likely our greed is rising. And that's why he tells Timothy, with food and covering, with these be content. Most of us have food and covering. So whenever I start to feel greedy in a sense, I remind myself of that verse. I have food in the fridge. I have clothes and a roof over my head. I need to be content, Lord. 
Luke 12:15. Jesus said to them, "Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has abundance does his life consist of possessions." I remember living in a little 400-square-foot converted garage with Leo when we first got married, thinking, if I just can get a house, my, my friends have houses, people I know, man, they have houses. If I can get a house, I'll be happy. Then I get a house. And I'm like, it's a house. It's just more stuff to clean, more stuff to vacuum, and more, more stuff all over the place. Like, let's go back to the 400-square-foot place. It was easier to clean. It was less money, too, a lot less. And that's life. It's like, if I just had that, then I'd be content. I remember even in like junior high, I'm like, if I, I went to, I think it was called Rusty's or something and see me, it was a surf shop. I'm like, I saw this shirt. I'm like, if I could just have that shirt, I'm going to be the coolest kid on campus. I'm going to be so happy. And I bought the shirt and like three days later, I was like, I don't even like the shirt anymore or was on to the next thing. And that's our life. When one has an abundance, his life does not consist of his possessions. Possessions will not fulfill. I mentioned that at the funeral. I go, people will let you down. Possessions won't fulfill. Life, people will hurt you. Life will let you down. There's only one person that can fulfill us, and that's Jesus Christ. We need to be content in him. You might say, Nick, I'm glad you're bringing this up, and you're talking to the rich people today, because I'm poor, so Give it to them, all right? Take it to those rich people. Here's the problem. Compared to the people in other parts of the world that haven't eaten for days and don't have a bed, every single person in this room, and most likely that can hear my voice, is rich. It's all perspective. It's all relative. We're all rich. Yeah, compared to the billionaires of the world that own islands and have yachts and 70 houses, we're poor. But Jesus put it this way. Mark chapter 7, 21 through 23. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, greediness, and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So yes, you can be poor and you can be greedy because it comes from within and it's at a heart level that it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be crucified. It needs to be put to death. Colossians 3.5, Romans 8.13, Galatians 5.24. Don't cater to it. Don't just say, oh, it's not a big deal. When these emotions rise in our hearts of greediness, of discontentment, we need to put it to death so that we'll grow strong in the faith. So if we want to have a strong, abiding, rock-solid faith in the Lord, a faith that trusts in him, no matter what life throws our way, we must remember the strong biblical language towards the fleshly desires that raise their ugly head against the faith in our life and the other fruits of the Holy Spirit in our life that God wants us to bear for him. We must put it to death, must declare war, and in closing, may we say like Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I don't lack anything, David's saying. He's my shepherd. He protects me. He guides me. He leads me. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If I have Jesus, I have everything. If I'm seated at his feet and gazing upon him, I'm content, I'm good, and my faith is growing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders today that will help us grow strong in our faith. Lord, that we would have a great faith like that centurion who said, I'm unworthy, Lord. I'm unworthy for you to even come to my house. Just say the word. Lord, help us to take you at your word. Help us to believe that you love us, that you care for us, that you're preparing a place for us, and that whatever you allow in our lives is for our good and for your glory. Help us to trust you, Lord. Grow us in our faith. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.